Heavenly Father, Lord, you're such a great and an awesome God. And Lord, we just desire that you would be our teacher tonight, that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase. And Father, as we look at the tabernacle, continue to look at the, the furnishings and just how it's put together, Lord, what a clear picture of your perfect son who you sent to die for us. Father, I pray, Lord, that each person who's here tonight would just be receptive to hear from you, that their hearts would be open. Lord, and again, we know that nothing happens by chance in your kingdom. We're here by divine appointment. We just want to see you move and you be glorified. So, Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. I titled the message tonight, The Only Path to Restoration. There's only one way, and we're going to see that as we look at the tabernacle tonight, that it's very clearly in God's Word that there's only one path or one direction for restoration. But I do want to just give some background again on the tabernacle. Those of you who may not have been here last week or the week before, I really want to catch you up. It's been said that for every New Testament principle, there's an Old Testament picture. The things that you see, principles in the New Testament, you can go back and you can look in the, in the Old Testament and just see a story that illuminates it in a great and a powerful way. And what's amazing is I believe that we're the most blessed of all Christians who've ever lived. Why? Because we have the completed revelation. We've got history. We've seen so many things happen that the rest of the people in the church did not see. And those who just lived during the time of the Old Testament had no idea what many of the things that were written in the law were foreshadows of. Well, we have a very clear understanding. If we just look at the Old Testament and look at it in the light of the New Testament, we get a very, very clear picture. So the tabernacle itself, it, it wasn't a huge place. It was 150 feet long and about 75 feet wide. And, and when you walked into the tabernacle, the first furnishing that you ran into, we're going to look at this tonight, was the altar of burnt offering. We're going to talk about that tonight, so we'll go into more detail when we do. When you go past that altar of burnt offering, you would come to a bronze laver. A laver was a place of cleansing where they would wash themselves. And these are the only two furnishings that were outside of the tent of meeting. And once you got to the tent of meeting, there's, before you got into the tabernacle itself, there was a, we're going to talk about this tonight, there was a gate that was there that you had to enter through. Now once you got past the bronze laver, you would go through yet another door another linen door, and you would enter in what was called the holy place. Now inside of the holy place, there were two different pieces of furniture. The first one was the table of showbread. In the table of showbread, there were 12 loaves that were to remain on there at all times, and it represented the presence of Almighty God. It represented His provision. It pointed to the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's awesome, again, to know that we know that our Savior was born in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. And we know that Jesus said that He is the bread of life. And so we see a very clear picture that it points to Jesus Christ. The only, uh, the other, one of the other pieces of furniture that was there in that holy place was, a, was the lampstand. We're going to look at that a little bit tonight. But it had seven branches on it. It was filled with oil. And it was something that illuminated the holy place. Without it, the holy place would have been pitch black. And you know what? The Bible says that Jesus is the light of the world. And we know we're going to look at it tonight that the oil is a representation of the Holy Spirit. You would then move on as you're moving toward that Holy of Holies. And right in front of it was an altar of incense. And by the way, if you get a chance, Manny brought a, a really neat uh, thing back there. That's just It's a real great drawing and it's got some background on it. So if you see it, if you like to visualize things like I do, it'll give you a real good visual picture of the tabernacle. But right there was an altar of incense. And the altar of incense is a picture of prayer and intercession. And once again, who's, our interse- who's the one who intercedes for us? Again, it's Jesus Christ. Now you get into the most holy place, and it's interesting that in the, the holy of holies, beyond the holy place, there was yet another veil. And we talked about this last week, and I'll talk about, this in a, about that in more depth in a moment. But when you got there, inside there was the Ark of the Covenant. Now the Ark of the Covenant was something that contained the law. It had three things in it. We've talked about it. It had manna, again, God's provision, and a picture of Jesus Christ, the bread of life. It had Aaron's rod, which is a picture of the, the high priest. Again, Jesus being our great high priest. And also within it was the Ten Commandments. We talked about the fact that the Ten Commandments were written on stone, And who's our rock? Who's the rock of our salvation the Bible talks about? Who is the stone that is cut without hands that the Bible talks about in Daniel? It's Jesus Christ. And what was written on the stones? Words. And who's the word? It's Jesus Christ again. So as you go through the tabernacle, you just see Jesus, 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 Jesus all over it. 
And what's amazing to me is there are many people today that believe in the Old Testament that don't see Jesus in, in the tabernacle, and it's really, really sad. My heart would be that by the time we're done with this, that you would clearly understand it enough that you'd be able to share with somebody who did not. Now, as we got last week, we looked at the formation of the tabernacle itself. Now, the tabernacle was made up, and again, you, if you read through it quickly, and this is not a chapter that most people would pick out to teach. You know, if somebody's just teaching randomly, this is why we don't do this here. If you're just teaching randomly through the Bible and picking stuff out, nobody would ever teach Exodus 26. It would not happen. Because if you go through and you read it, it just tells you how to make the temple. You're thinking, what is this? Are these instructions for a tent? Or is this a chapter in the Bible? Right? Did this come out of my kid's Christmas present? Or is this really? But really, it's so clearly, again, a picture of our Savior. Into that just briefly, but the first layer of the tabernacle of the tent, they would take these long, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but they would take these long pieces of linen, and they were woven together, and then they would break them into two sets of five, and they would bring them together, and they would clasp them along the top. And it's interesting to note that the Ten Commandments were in two sets of five. Here's a picture of the law, and they were clasped together at the top with gold. Now we know that that first layer was made just beautiful. Beautiful. It was made of fine woven linen, which is white. It was made of blue, purple, and scarlet. Now, the things that are significant about that, we talked about this last week, picture of Jesus. White points to His righteousness. The blue that was in the cloth points to His deity, the heavenlies. Purple is a, is a color of what? Royalty. And who's the King of Kings? Jesus Christ. Scarlet, red, the word that we talked about last week is toloth, and that's where a worm that crawls up into a tree, plants itself in a branch, and in reproduction it dies, leaving a huge red spot that later turns white. Again, another picture of Jesus Christ. And so as this beautiful first layer was just incredible, but you know the sad part is that on top of that layer went another layer of, on the tabernacle. Now the next layer was made out of black goat's hair. Now why in the world you would take the most beautiful linen around and put black goat's hair on top of it? But that's exactly what they were instructed to do by God. And the goat's hair, the black, what do you think that might be a picture of? picture of sin. And so from the outside, that black leather was placed on top of this beautiful color. Now on top of that was a third layer, and it was ram skins dyed red. So you've got this bottom layer, beautiful linen, a picture of Christ. On top of it, you've got this black goat's hair that's a picture of sin. But then on top of that, you've got yet another layer of ram skins dyed red. And last week, again, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but we talked about how on Mount Moriah, when Abraham took Isaac up to be sacrificed. You remember when God told him to take your son, your only son Isaac, and sacrifice him to the Lord. And when he got up on Mount Moriah, as he was about to kill his son, the Lord stopped him. And instead, the Lord provided himself, not for himself. He provided himself a sacrifice. And when he looked him into the thicket, what did he see? A ram. And they killed that ram. And here we have on top of this black layer of goat's hair, this red layer of dyed ram's skins. Now, what's that a picture of? It's a picture of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because what's going to restore sinful man back to holy God? There's only one thing, and that's the shed blood of a perfect sacrifice, and only Jesus Christ can be that. And then the fourth layer on top of that was badger skins. So you're thinking, man, why in the world would they do that? And the badger skins were common, they were ugly, they just looked like every tent around. And people walking by on the outside would see nothing spectacular about the tabernacle. But again, that points to Jesus, because the Bible clearly told us that from the outward appearance that he was nothing to behold. He was nothing that would attract a man by his physical appearance alone. It was only those who could see and came to know who Jesus Christ was on the inside that they could be attracted to him. And then lastly, the thing that we saw last week that was just awesome to me was the veil itself. As you entered into that holy place, after they had built the tabernacle, they talked about the veil. Now the veil, again, the colors in the veil were the same colors that were in that beautiful linen. It was the blue representing Jesus' deity, the purple his royalty, the scarlet our sacrifice, and the white linen pointing to his righteousness. But what's interesting to me is it says in Hebrews 10.9 that the veil is what? It's the flesh of Christ. It says in Hebrews 10 verses 19 and 20, go read it, and it talks about the veil being his flesh. Now it's interesting that when they made, they were instructed to make this beautiful veil, where did they, what did they do with it? We talked about this last week. What did they do with it? They hung it. Isn't it interesting that they took the thing that represented the flesh of Christ and they hung it? Very much as our Savior would later be hung on a cross. Again, this is 
centuries before the cross, but a clear picture of Jesus Christ. Now we know that when Jesus was crucified, something very awesome happened to the veil that was not in now in the tabernacle, but now in the temple. And what happened to that veil that was, that was three feet thick? What happened to that veil? It was torn from top to bottom. And who tore it? God the Father did. It wasn't torn from bottom to top like a man would tear it, but God the Father tore it. And so as our Savior's flesh was torn or broken upon the cross, so too his picture, the picture of his flesh, that veil was torn, which means that you and I can enter into that holy place anywhere and anytime. Prior to that, only the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement get into that most holy place, Yom Kippur. Only then could someone enter in. But now once the veil's been torn, you and I can draw near to God anywhere and anytime because we have an intercessor seated at the right hand of the Father, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen? And so now we're moving outward in this tabernacle. We've seen that they started with the Ark of the Covenant was the first thing that we, they talked about having them build. And they did the lampstand and the table of showbread and the veils. And now we're going to move into the outer court. And that's what we're going to look at tonight, is the outer court, or the courtyard portion of the tabernacle. So let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 27, as we look at the, the altar of burnt offering. We'll also see the court of the tabernacle itself, and care for the lampstand. Verse 1, You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long, five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. Now, it's interesting to note that this altar is the first thing you would see when you came into the courtyard. And it was also the biggest piece of furniture that there was. So if you came in through the gate that we're going to talk about in a minute, when you walked in, the first thing you saw right in front of you was this huge altar for sacrifice. It was seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet, seven and a half feet square, and four and a half feet tall. And right there on that altar was constant Basically, continual sacrifices for the sins of mankind being made. Now, you can imagine with two million people, and they're making sacrifices in the temple as often as daily, then guess what? It's going to be 24-7, this aroma, this sacrifice is going on. As soon as you walked in, what you would immediately see is sacrifice. And the reason for that, the reason that the first thing that was there is it tells us very clearly that without sacrifice, we cannot draw near to God. There must be sacrifice. There must be death before there can be life. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And when the first sin between, when Adam and Eve sinned, what was, what, and they came out and they knew they were naked, remember? And they hid from the Lord. And what did the Lord do? The Bible says that He killed an animal and He made clothes for them. He clothed them. The shedding of blood for the covering of sin. It goes all the way back to Genesis. And here we are again. The shedding of blood. Pointing to the sacrifice. And they didn't even fully understand but they knew that God had commanded it, so they were making sacrifices. But all of it was pointing to our Savior. The altar illustrates the fact that no one, again, can approach God, but sacrifice must come first. Now, it's interesting to note that right behind that would be that bronze laver. And that was the only, they could only come to that place of cleansing after they'd gone by the place or through the place of sacrifice. There is no cleansing until there's been sacrifice. You cannot go and cleanse yourself. You cannot go and make yourself clean by your good works or the things you do. You can't skip by the, alt, the bronze altar of sacrifice and go straight to the laver of cleansing. It, you can't do it. There must be sacrifice first. There must be the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. Somebody must pay the price. Now in this case, it's animals that are paying the price. But we, again, reiterate one more time, it's pointing to who? To Jesus Christ. Verse 2, you shall make, it, make its horns... On its four corners, its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay them with bronze. Now, they had four horns on this altar, and the horns were actually used to tie the sacrifice down. They would take the sacrifice, and they would tie it down with these horns to make sure that it would stay in place while they killed it and then eventually cooked it. Now, it's interesting to me that when Jesus was arrested in the garden, the Bible says that he was bound with ropes. And, and, and we'll see later there's some significance is what we just studied on Sunday as he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was bound. Then when he was taken to be sacrificed, what did they do to him? They nailed him to the cross. We, here we see that they would tie them to the horns to hold the sacrifice in place. And they took our Savior, the perfect Lamb of God, and they nailed him to the cross. Now, it's interesting to me that on the Day of Atonement, they would take and cover these horns with blood. 
just fill them up, put blood all over the horns on that one, that special day of atonement. But you know what? What happened on the ultimate day of atonement when Jesus suffered and died in our place? The nails were filled with blood. Those, the picture of those horns, the thing that held the sacrifice there. But I want to say this just to make it really clear. Jesus Christ was not held to the cross by rope. He was not held to the cross by nails. He's Almighty God created the universe. He could have spoke a word and a legion of angels would have come down. He could have just said you're all toads and turned everybody into toads, right? I mean, He's God. He can do whatever He wants. But you know what held Him on the cross? It wasn't nails and it wasn't ropes and it wasn't the Roman soldiers. We talked about this on Sunday. Who arrested who? He said, I am. And they all fell backward. So who arrested who? Jesus freely went to the cross and He was not held to the cross by nails, but He was held to the cross out of love for each person in this room. He thought about you while he was hanging on the cross, and that's why he stayed. Nails didn't hold him. Nails couldn't hold him. He's God. But he hung there out of love for you. It says there, and you shall make overlay it with bronze. Now remember that the previous things that we've seen that are in the holy place and the holy of holies, it's all gold. And now we go from gold pointing to deity or pointing to heavenly things, and now we have bronze. Now, why would they go from gold to bronze? Is there significance in that? Of course there is, because it's in the Bible. Amen? If it's in the Bible, there's always a significance. Well, why would they go from this metal to that metal? There's a reason. That's because it's in the Bible. God does nothing by chance. He's, you know what? He knows the number of hairs on our head. He's numbered them. Do you think anything happens by chance in the Bible? Absolutely not. The Bible says not one sparrow falls from the sky without him knowing about it. Let me tell you a little bit about bronze. Bronze or brass, interchangeable words, they both point to judgment. Let me give you some examples of that. Samson, after he, he blew it with Delilah. Boy, Samson was a knucklehead. But you know what? A lot of people do the same. Here's this prophet of God, and he keeps telling her ways that if you buy me this way, then I won't, you know, and then and she finds, oh, you lied to me. Okay, if you buy me this way, and she keeps trying to do it, and he keeps telling her. Blows my mind. He finally he tells her the truth. Cut off my hair. Well, now he's at this point. So what did they, what did they bind him with? It says they bound him with bronze or brass fetters. Goliath, when he came out, what was he wearing on his head? It's very clear and very specific in the text. He's wearing a bronze or a brass helmet. Well, we know how that worked out. And we know where his head ended up pretty quick, right? This bronze or this brass helmet was God's judgment upon him pretty quick. In Numbers 21, Israel was complaining and murmuring, which Israel often did. And none of us ever does that, by the way. We don't ever complain. But, you know, Israel is murmuring and complaining and moaning basically about nothing. And they're wandering, oh, you know. You ever, you ever done that with your kids? Your kids are just complaining about nothing. And you say something like, I'm going to give you something to complain about if you don't knock it off, right? <laughs> I, you know, probably none of you have ever done that. But, you know, here's the reality. That's what God does here. These guys are murmuring and complaining and wandering, oh, you know, just whining about nothing. And, in, and the Lord sent fiery serpents into the camp that bit the Israelites, and it was a death sentence. That's what God did. Now, He did bring something, though, that could deliver them from that death. And what He brought was, He brought a pole, a brass serpent on a brass pole, and all who looked at the snake on the pole would be healed. This is in Numbers 21. I'm not making it up. It's in the Bible. And so here we see, they're in there being bit by snakes, and it said, now, Moses said, now, if you look at the pole, you'll be delivered. The pole of brass or bronze, picture of judgment. But what's interesting to me is that here's this brass pole with a brass snake. You've been bit by a snake, and if you look at a snake, then you're going to be healed. But if you don't look, you're going to die. Now, it's very clear that that's a picture of the cross, but you might say, well, wait a minute. Why would Jesus be a serpent? Isn't a serpent the devil? Isn't a serpent a picture of sin? Well, the Bible tells us that he that knew no sin became sin for us. And this is a picture of the fact that Jesus would become sin for us. He would take the sins of all mankind. So in judgment upon Israel for their murmuring and their complaining, they had to look up. And if they look up at that brass or that bronze snake upon that brass pole, then they would be healed. And if they did not, then they would face judgment. The same is true today. If you look to the cross, you'll be healed of your sin. If you look to the cross, you'll be restored to Almighty God. If you don't, you're going to die in your trespasses and sins. The message, the message today is the only path of restoration. 
And as we go through the text, we're going to see it more and more clearly. You know, the way we know that that serpent for sure was Jesus, or picture of Jesus, Jesus said it in John chapter 3. If you're a Bible student and you want to go look it up, John chapter 3, when he's speaking to Nicodemus, what does he say? He tells him very clearly that the serpent is me. Back in Numbers 21, he takes Nicodemus, an Old Testament scholar, and he takes him to what he knows. Verse 3. Also, so we know that bronze is a picture of judgment, so it's made out of bronze. And as we get further and further away from the Holy of Holies, we see less and less detail and less and less preciousness in how the things are created. Also, you shall make its pans to receive its asses, its shovels, its basins, and its forks, and its fire pans. You shall make it all its utensils of bronze. You shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze. And on the network you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath, and the network may be midway up the altar. Now, this is, this is one big barbecue. That's exactly what this is. This thing is up, and it's a huge you know, crossing of brass. Right? And they bring it two and a half, about two feet up in the middle of this altar where the, when the things were basically being cooked, that's what they landed on. Now, the Bible tells us that offerings are a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Did you know that? How many of you have ever heard that? The Bible says that offerings are a sweet-smelling aroma. You know what? It's a big barbecue. I mean, I love the smell like tri-tip. How about you? Right? And I'm telling you, can you imagine? It talks about in the Old Testament. We're going to see as we continue on. It talks about burning all the fat. The fat, that smells good. Right? I mean, and he's burning it. It's the sweet aroma. The sweet aroma of sacrifice. The sweet aroma of restoring sinful man back to holy God. And so, as this altar is being made, it's being made. It's like a big barbecue. That's really what it is. The animals are being cut, but then they're falling down, and on top of that grate, they're being basically barbecued. Now, the sacrifice of, again, the sweet aroma. And so do, too does a life of one set apart to Christ, a life of love and sacrifice and devotion. Do you know that when we live lives like that, that it is, it is pleasant in the presence of our Savior? Do you know it's a sweet aroma to Him when we live lives sold out and sacrificed for Him? It says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, many of you know this verse. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You know, as Christians, it just makes sense for us to live lives sold out for God. Amen? I mean, He died for us. Should we not be living sold out for Him? He gave us all for us so we might have eternal life. Should we be holding back and living kind of wannabe Christian lives? Or should we be sold out for Him? And that's exactly what Romans 12 is talking about. Verse 6. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles for the acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. Again, judgment. And the poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. That means this altar must be portable. Because what did they do with the tabernacle as they moved through the wilderness? They set it up, tore it down, set it up, tore it down, set it up, tore it down. As they wandered all over the wilderness. And this altar must be portable. But how does that apply to our lives? You know, in Numbers 4, when the altar was moved, every other thing, every other furnishing was covered with blue, and this one was covered with purple. Only one. I looked it up. I went back to Numbers chapter 4. I read them all. And all of them were covered in blue, and this one's covered in purple. I wonder if there's a reason for that. Of course there is, because it's in the Bible, right? And so they covered it with purple. Why? What is purple? Royalty. King of kings, Lord of lords. On top of the purple, they put badger skins. So they're carrying the altar around, it's covered with purple, and then it's covered with badger skins. Badger skins being common, simple, nothing. And the reason is that when people look... At the altar, they can look at it one or two ways. Or when today, when people look at the cross, they can look at it one or two ways. Or when people look at Jesus, they can look at Him one of two ways. They can either see Him as King of kings and Lord of lords, or something common that doesn't make any difference in my life. They can either see Him as that purple that's draped over that altar that all points to Him, or they can see Him as something simple and something common that doesn't impact my life. Yesterday I was on a sales call, and a lady had a beautiful cross around her neck. And the sad part is, I said, wow. That's a beautiful cross. I said, you know, where did you get that? She said, oh, I had it made. I said, really? She said, yeah, I had a guy make it, and, you know, and I had several of them. I got a gold one and a silver one. And I said, really? I said, does this have a meaning behind it? Does the cross have a meaning behind it? Well, no, not really. I just like crosses. Oh. 
The cross can either be the place of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, or it can just be something common. It can be the most important, impactful thing in the history of all mankind, the most important thing that's ever happened in your life, or it can be a piece of jewelry that hangs around your neck that means absolutely nothing to you. What a heartbreak. So, clothed in purple, covered in purple, but covered in badger skins, when you see the cross, what do you think about? It's a place of execution. It's the most incredible act of love in the history of all mankind. The scary part to me is that too many people today will not even talk about the cross in churches because they're afraid of offending somebody. You know what? We're all going to meet at the, at the feet of Jesus one day. Amen? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we either confess and accept what He did for us on the cross, or we're going to confess it too late, and we're going to spend eternity separated from Him. It's interesting to me that those same two things we saw on the cross with the two thieves. Remember one mocked Jesus. Remember that? Mocked him. Talked to him like he's common. Hey, you, you know, come on, man. Get us all down from here. Uh, right? And talking to Jesus and blaspheming him. Looking at him like badger skins. Seeing him as nothing special. But then the other one, what did he say? He said, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. He referred to him and looked at him as that king. That purple. You're the king. You're the one. You know, we deserve to die. You've done nothing. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. That proves again that to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. Amen? He died today and he's in his presence today. Christians don't die, we just move. Amen? We go from here to heaven. And I'll tell you what, you don't need a U-Haul. You don't have to have your friends come over and help. Nothing. You just go. And it's good stuff. And so we can look at the cross and we can see it again as a, the king of kings. Or we can see it as something simple and something common. Verse 8. He shall make it hollow with boards as, as, and I wanted you to see this very clearly, as it was shown to you on the mountain, so, so you shall make it. So the bottom part of it was, was hollow. And the bottom part was so that the fire would burn better and also a place where the ashes might be deposited. But listen to this part. As it was shown to you on the mountain, so shall you make it. Everything that God wants us to do, He's given us a pattern for it. He gave them a pattern, make the altar this way. He didn't say, hey, go get all the craftsmen in town, have them all come in, let's put some bids out, and let's see which one we like, and then let's bring all the congregation in, and we'll all vote. We'll vote on this altar or that altar, we'll pick out an altar that we like best, and that's the one that we'll choose, and that's the one that we'll use. He didn't tell them to do that. He didn't say, vote on it, get, get, let's get the altar building committee. And let's all get together and let's, let's run some altars by. Let's get some drawings first. And then let's run that by. You know, he said, you do what I've shown you to do on the mountain. God had shown him, that's how you do it. And you know what, I want to tell you something. In the church today, we have committeeized Jesus Christ right out of a lot of churches. We don't have the Holy Spirit leading and guiding and directing and giving us wisdom anymore. It's all about, let's vote on it. Let's get a committee. Let's run it up a flagpole. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's look at all the different... Man, where's God? What happened to God? Is God in control? Does God know what He's doing? Can't we just trust Him? Amen? Don't we want to, why don't we just seek His face and seek His will? You know what? He's given us a plan. And you know what? It wasn't, they didn't vote on it. They didn't debate about it. The men didn't put it together. The pattern for the church today is right here. Amen? This is it. You want to know what the church ought to look like? Read the book of Acts. It's right there. This is the pattern. You know what? As Calvary chapels, we don't walk around with you know, our denominational rules in our pocket because this is our denominational rules right here. Amen? We don't walk around with a list of things and here's how we're going to do stuff and we don't have 47 committees. And You know why? Because there's only one head to this church and it's Jesus Christ. Amen? And He's given us the pattern and it's right here and this is what we're going to follow. Amen? This is it. Read the book, don't wait for the movie. That's why we need to study to show ourselves approved. Workmen who need not be, need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So what, often what happens is people have their agendas, and we want to do this, and we want to do this that way, and we get away from the word of God, and we stop letting it be the authority, and before you know it, the church becomes a religious country club. It becomes a place where the word of God's not taught anymore, and it doesn't matter what the Bible says. Well, we voted on it, and this is the new rule, and we forgot about what God says. And we need to make sure that never, you know what, we're not going to let that happen here, I promise you. And if you ever think it is, you come challenge me. I'm, I'm, I'm here to serve you. I'm not the head of this church. Jesus Christ is. I'm just the servant. Pastor means under rower. At the bottom of the boat, rowing the ship. That's it. I'm here to minister to you guys, to equip you guys, to encourage you guys, to strengthen you guys, so that you will do the work of the ministry. And this is the plan for the church right here. This is it. 
We don't have we don't have a bunch of rules written down, a bunch of law. We don't got none of that. We got the Bible. Uh, you know, I've got enough problem with this stuff right here. I don't need to add any of my own. Amen. I don't need to vote and ask you guys what you think. I, it's what God thinks. It's what God says. You know, we need to be people on our knees praying and asking God to guide and lead and direct Calvary Santa Cruz. And you know what? He will, and he'll do great and awesome things. And he said, you use the pattern that I showed you on the mountain. We're going to use the pattern that he gave us in this book right here. 66 books, 40 authors, 3 continents, 3 languages, 1,500 years, 1 central theme, no contradictions. How, how come that's true? Because God wrote it. Amen? And there's no other pattern. There's no other thing that we want to use. We don't pattern ourselves after Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa either. We don't pattern ourselves after Calvary Chapel, San Jose. We pattern ourselves after the Bible. That's it. Okay? Pretty clear, huh? All right. Pastor Abe gets passionate about things sometimes. But you know what? I just want you guys to understand that we're called by God, and God's the one who's the head of this church, and we don't have 7,000 people in a hierarchy that we answer to. Not that we're not accountable. I want to be accountable. I, I strive for and I desire accountability. I'm accountable to every person in this room. And then I'm accountable before that to God. You know, when I'm teaching the Word and I'm preparing a Bible study, I'm not really all that worried about what you think. You know that? I'm really not worried about what you think. That's not like on my list. Well, I wonder what Mike Giblin's going to think about this message. I'm, I'm, that's not what I'm thinking about. You know what I'm thinking about? I'm thinking about the fact that the Holy Spirit is sitting right there. And Jesus Christ, you know what I mean? They're here. And I want to be faithful to the Word of God before them. And if I'm faithful before them, then God's going to take care of the rest of it. If I try to be a man pleaser and just tell you stuff that you want to hear, then I'm going to be disobedient to what God wants me to do. A lot of people, the Bible says in the end times, they're going to raise up ear ticklers. People that just tell you what you want to hear. You know, Bozo the Clown come teach on Sunday. You know, that kind of thing, right? Petting zoo. And, you know, we'll do everything we can to flying Melinda's on Wednesday night. And we'll do all this stuff to get a big crowd. And then we'll teach you nothing. And you'll walk out of here going, wow, I feel like I went to the circus, right? But you won't be any closer to God. You won't have been touched by His Word. And we're not going to do that. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That's why that's the verse that God gave me for our church. Verse 9. Now we're going to move to the court of tabernacle. What in the world did that have to do with the bronze altar? Well, it, making it in the pattern that God gave us. Amen? That's the pattern. That's what we follow. That's where we're headed. Verse 9. You shall also make the court of the tabernacle. For the south side there shall be hangings for the court made of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long for one side, and 20 pillars on their 20 sockets shall be bronze, and the hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be silver. Likewise, also make the length of the north side. There shall be hangings 100 cubits long with its 20 pillars. There are 20 sockets of bronze and hooks on the pillars and their bands of silver. And along the width of the court of the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits with 10 pillars and 10 sockets the width of the court on the east side shall be 50 cubits. The hangings on one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their pillar, three pillars and three sockets. And on the other side there shall be hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and three sockets. Now, he's talking about the court, as you go over there and look at that when we leave, when, we, when we're done here. Outside of the tent of meeting was the tabernacle itself. And now he's talking about the gate or the fence, if you will, that goes all the way around the outside. Now, what is this fence made out of? This fence that separates the tabernacle from the camp, separating sinful man from holy God. It's perfect hell. It's fine white linen. That's what it says. White linen would be a representation of what? Righteousness. A picture of Jesus, once again, separating sinful man from holy God. You see righteousness going all the way around. Perfect, beautiful white. Then there were pillars that held it together. Now it's interesting that the pillars that what the pillars were held to the ground with was bronze. Bronze, a picture of what again? Judgment. Why is man separated from the tabernacle, from the tent of meeting? Why is man in the camp separated? Because of sinfulness, because he sinned against God, because of the judgment of God, he's been separated. But here's the good news. What did they hang these cloth, these linen things between the pillars with? It says with silver. And we talked about this last week, that silver in the Bible points to redemption. And we know this because when they would pay for a slave that had been taken into captivity, what did they buy that slave back with? 30 pieces of what? 
silver. When Jesus was betrayed by Judas, what was he betrayed for? 30 pieces of what? Silver. Silver, here's a picture of redemption. So we see judgment in the base of it, but we see the potential for redemption in the linen being hung between the pillars. What a beautiful picture that there's both judgment and redemption, and that's exactly what the cross does. It's a place of judgment for those who deny Christ, and it's a place of redemption for those who repent of their sin and ask Him to be their Savior. It's either a place of repentance, a place of redemption, or a place of judgment. And so too is this wall that went around on the outside of the tabernacle, separating the camp from the tent of meeting. Now, it's interesting as we move on here, that there's only one way to get in, to the tabernacle or to the tent of meeting. There's only one way to get from the outward camp to the inside. All the way around on the outside, it's one continuous fence, and there's no other way in. There's only one gate, there's only one place where you can come in, and it's right at the very front. And when you would enter in, you would step right into the bronze altar of sacrifice. And what was that gate made out of? Look at verse 16. For the gate of the court, there shall be screen, should be a screen, 20 cubits long, that's 30 feet, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen made by a weaver. It shall have four pillars and four sockets. What does that sound like? What is that exactly the same colors made of exactly the same way as what? The veil. And also the linen that hung, that, that first linen that hung over the top of the tabernacle. And the veil is a picture of what? What does it say in Hebrews chapter 10? It's what? It's the flesh of Christ. So what must you enter, what must you go through, what's the only path from that place of the camp outside of God's will and the place where sin reigns to a place of repentance? What's the only way you can come through? What's the only thing? It's the gate and it's a picture of who? Jesus Christ. One way God said to get to heaven and Jesus is the only way. Amen? There's no other way to heaven but through Him. Again, the blue, the deity, the purple, the royalty, the scarlet, the sacrifice, a clear picture of Christ. It's interesting, as I was thinking about this this afternoon, I thought about Jesus hanging on the cross, and I thought about these colors, and you know, it says that Jesus was beaten and He was mocked, and they would run up and they would hit Him in the face and say, prophesy who hit you. What color are bruises? They're purple and blue, aren't they? For the most part, isn't what, what bruises look like on your skin? You say black and blue, but it's purple and blue. And you know what? Jesus was purple and blue. He'd been beaten. You know what other color, though? Wasn't there red? His shed blood. The Bible says that, we talked about this on Sunday, that you could not recognize him. He was marred more than any other man ever has been. Now, I've seen some people have been beat up pretty bad, and Jesus was beat up worse than that. Now, you thought, might think, where's the white come in? Well, let me say this. It says that when he was scourged, that it ripped away his muscles, his tissues, and that his bones were revealed. So as Jesus hung on the cross, there was purple and blue in his bruises, and there was red as his blood was being shed, and they saw the white of his bones. And you know what? As they were entering through that gate, that's what it was, a picture of the cross. It pictured his deity and his royalty and his fact that he was a sacrifice and his righteousness, but it was also a visual picture of Jesus on the cross, and it was the only way you could get in to that place of sacrifice. If you didn't go through that gate, there was no other way. If you don't go through Jesus Christ, there is no other way. Only way into the courtyard. The only way into the place of sacrifice and redemption and restoration and salvation. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man, no man comes to the Father but by me. No man. The Bible says in John 10, 9, I am the door. By me, if any man enters in, he shall be saved. Now, my wife was watching a program the other night called Seventh Heaven, and there's a, I used to watch that show, and it's so weak now, I don't watch that anymore. But when it first came out, I thought, you know, it's a pastor and his five kids is how it started out. And I thought, well, that'll be kind of cool, pastor and his five kids. And you watch it, and the first few episodes, it seemed pretty clean and clean cut. And now they're all dating everybody and messing around. It's no good. It's no bueno. So don't watch that show. But here's the thing. Recently, my wife was watching a repeat, and this guy's up at his church, and he's saying, well, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe, just as long as you believe it with your whole heart. What? If you're a Muslim, just be a good Muslim. One way God said to get to heaven, and Muhammad is the only, that's not what it said. And Jesus is the only way. This gate is not a picture of Muhammad. 
This gate is not a picture of the Hindus. This gate is not a picture of the New Age movement and you being elevated to Godhood somehow. This gate is not a picture of any other way, any other path. There is no other hope for mankind but Jesus Christ and crucified and risen from the dead. Muhammad was a sinner that... Every, every other leader, religious leader, was a sinful, wicked man in need of a Savior. And this gate could not point to any of them. It only points to Jesus Christ. And boy, Pastor Dave, that seems so narrow. But aren't you glad that the truth is the truth, and it's narrow, and it's not ambiguous? Well, are you going to heaven? Uh, well, I hope so. You know, I mean, you know, the Bible says there's a big scale, and I'm just kind of trying to work my way. I mean, what a disaster that would be. What if there were 9,000 ways? You're just hoping you pick one of the ones that really counts. It's so clear. It's so simple. You know, it'd be like going up to, to a, a cancer ward, and everybody in there is dying of cancer, and you come up with a cure. Dr. Webb's working in his, in his lab, and he comes up with a cure, right? He works on DNA and stuff. So you get a cure, and you go in and say, Guys, I got the cure. And a few people grab it and take it, and they're healed instantly. Yes! Cure to cancer. Can you imagine someone sitting there in the back going, well, I'm thinking that's pretty narrow that you only got like one way. Just that pill? Aren't there some other options for me? Can't I do some other things besides just taking that pill? I'm thinking I, I'm, that's kind of narrow. How foolish is that? And it's just as foolish when people say, Jesus only? That's the only way I can get to heaven? Oh man, that's narrow. Every other man is in need of a Savior. Nobody else hung on a cross for your sin. And if they had, they couldn't have paid for your sin anyway because they were sinners in need of a Savior too. Nobody else on the third day proved they were God by raising from the dead. Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. Muhammad wasn't. Amen? Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. Joseph Smith of the Mormon church is not. All the other beliefs, and all the other systems you can follow. You know, the world, two plus two is four and the truth is the truth and it can't be nine and four and seven and five. And people will try to say, well, you know, you can be, you can be a, a, a Muslim, but wait a minute, but they don't believe in Jesus, but, well, yeah, you can be that. And you can also believe in reincarnation, but wait a minute, Jesus, the Bible says appointed for man wants to live and then to die. And then How can you have eight things that all contradict each other and all of them be true? It's impossible. There's only one truth, there's only one way, there's only one gate, there's only one answer for mankind, and it's Jesus Christ. Amen? Again, I'm pretty clear, right? But, I mean, that's it. And so often we want to fall into the trap. Hey, we live in Santa Cruz, man. Believe everything. You know, oh, yeah, you know, the new way. Oh, you know, you got to experience this and try that. And the sad part is they'll try anything but the truth. The gate's right in front of them, and they want to go get a pole vault. You know, well, let me try that. Can I? No, that won't work. What about if I dig under? No, you can't do that. The gate's right there. Just walk through. No, i got to have my own way. And sadly, that's where most of the world is. Now, it's interesting to me that the same material that was used for that front gate is the same material that is used to enter into the holy place and it's the same material that's used to enter into the holy of holies now i believe this and again this is pastor dave supposition all right but i believe that the first one is a picture of salvation as we enter into that gate to that place of sacrifice we're entering into salvation but you know what if you've already been born again god still wants to do more with you amen and the holy place has been called a place of ministry. Because when you get into the holy place, what do you have there? You have the lampstand, the light of the world. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 that we are the light of the world. You know, a light, a city that's set on a hill doesn't hide its light, right? You, you hold it out. You know, when I was a little kid, I've shared this with you before, that, you know, this is the light of mine. How many of you ever heard that song before? Hide it under a bush. Oh no, I'm going to let it shine, right? Amen? And you know what? That's a picture of ministry. The showbread that's there, a picture of ministry. The incense, a picture of prayer. Prayer is the most awesome ministry. You know what? We need to be praying more. Amen? You want to see God move? Pray. You want to see God save some people in your office? Start praying for them by name. You want to see God bring revival in Santa Cruz County? Start praying for Santa Cruz County. You want to see your whole life changed? Start praying. And so between that first is that place of salvation but as we draw deeper into the lord only through him and the power of his holy spirit can we come into a place of ministry go beyond salvation but into a place where god's using us for his kingdom we stop being pew potatoes and big fat sheep and we start being used for his kingdom we start having an impact on the world around us but what's awesome to me is that last veil that enters us into the most holy place the holy of holies where the shekinah glory of almighty god dwell there's no light in that room. 
There's a lampstand in the holy place, but there's no light in the holy of holies. You know why? Because the Shekinah glory was there. And God's not going to share his light with anybody else. Amen? And you know what I believe that's a picture of? I believe it's worship. When we, when we draw into God's presence and we worship him in spirit and in truth, that can only come as the Holy Spirit meets us. You know what? We need to be people who worship. Why did God create us? To worship him. What are we going to do in heaven that we do here on earth? We're going to worship. We're not going to do much else in heaven that we do on earth, but we are going to worship. Let's finish up. Verse 17. All the pillars around the court shall have bands of silver, their hooks shall be of silver, and their sockets of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits wide, 50 throughout, and 50 throughout, and the height, 5 cubits, made of fine woven linen, and the sockets of bronze. Again, pictures of judgment. All the utensils of the tabernacle... For all its services, all its pegs, and pegs of the court shall be bronze. Now it's interesting that, if you remember from last week, the tabernacle, the boards in the tabernacle that held up the tabernacle were 15 feet tall. The boards on the outward fence are 7.5 feet tall. That tells me that everybody, even though they may not be able to enter in, they could walk by and look up and clearly see the tabernacle. Nobody would not see the tabernacle. It was evidence to all around them. And you know what I thought about? They could look up over the fence and see the tabernacle that pointed to Jesus Christ. And I believe for us today, when we look up at creation, amen? You look at the stars, the moon, everything that God... How can you not see that there's a creator? Amen? But some people want to worship the creation rather than the creator. And he made it very clear. The tabernacle was up high enough that everybody would see it. Nobody would be blind to it. They would all have to ask a question. What is that all about? What is the tabernacle doing here? Moses would teach him what it was about. And it was an opportunity for them to enter in and to make sacrifice and to draw unto the Lord. Verse 20 and 21, and then we're done. And you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. And the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend to it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generation on behalf of the children of Israel. Now, the care for the lampstand. The lamp was to burn continually. And it was never to go out. And so Aaron's sons were called by God to go in and make sure that the oil was repeatedly put in there so that it would not go out. Now, oil in the Bible is a picture of what? Holy Spirit. The light, again, a picture of us being the light of the world. The only way that you and I can be the light of the world is when we're filled with, to overflowing the Holy Spirit. Amen? It's got to be, if you want to burn continually for God, you better be filled with, baptized with, and dwelt with, whatever you want to call it, just get it, with the Holy Spirit, amen? Some people call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit, some people call it the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, some people call it the outpouring, just whatever, just call it whatever you want, but get it, amen? Say, Lord, I want more of you. I want you to be pouring out over the top of me. Lord, I want you to consume every aspect of my life. Lord, I want to be contagious to the world around me. And the only way that that light would stay lit is if, the, if that oil was brought. Now, it's interesting to me that the oil was brought by the people. The people came and brought the oil, picture the Holy Spirit, and then the minister, Aaron and his sons, would put it into the lampstands. Now, the Bible also says that thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. I also believe there's an application here that only with the power of the Holy Spirit, with that oil, will we understand the Word of God. Amen? Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And it's interesting that Aaron and his sons were called to continually keep that lamp lit. I believe for me it was an exhortation that I am to continually keep you guys in the Word of God, teach you the Word of God without compromise, keep pouring it into you guys, knowing that it will transform your lives. Dave's opinion is not going to help you much. Probably not at all. Probably hurt you. Okay? But the Word of God will transform your life. And we see here that that lamp, that light, it's a light into our feet. And praise the Lord for that. It's God's Word, and that's what we need. Jesus was arrested where? On the Mount of what? Olives. We saw this on Sunday. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, which means oil press. It's interesting that the type of oil that they would use here, the only way that that oil would be created, it had to be, they took olives and they beat it with a rod. They beat these olives with a rod. Again, 
Another picture of what happened to our Savior. Remember how they got water out of the rock? What did they do? They beat it with a rod. A rod again, a picture of the cross. I mean, man, it's Jesus, 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 Jesus all over the temple. We could talk about this for the next month. And we're going to continue on next week looking at the temple. So the oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. So note also that people brought the oil, and I love that. And you need to come. When you come to church on Sunday, or you come to church on Wednesday, I pray that you be praying on the way to church. That you be reading the text before you got here. You pray and say, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I want you to speak to me. I want you to minister to my heart. Prepare my heart to hear from you. You come like that, you're going to get way more out of the Word of God being taught than if you're napping because you're tired from work today. Amen? It's going to happen. Ask God to move. And lastly, we see that it says there, the, ten, the, the veil that it's talking about, it says, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening, and it shall be a statue forever and ever. Again, a calling. God's calling is irrevocable, and these guys need to be faithful to what God's called them to do. So in conclusion, the altar is a picture of the cross. The bronze altar. We cannot draw near to God without first a payment for our sins. The only thing that could pay for our sins is a perfect sacrifice. And the only perfect sacrifice has been Jesus Christ. In the court of the tabernacle, we saw there's only one entrance into fellowship with God. And the only way that we can get in is through Jesus Christ alone. And then lastly, we saw the care for the lampstand, that we are called to be the light of the world. And that can only happen when we're illuminated by the power of the Holy Spirit. That God's Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And that, w- that me and everyone who ministers God's word are to keep that light lit continually. So what is Jesus? He's the sacrifice of the altar that we talked about. He's the only way. He's the only way. He's the only d- way we can get into that place, of inter- that place of communion with the Father. And he's also the light of the world. He's the only path to restoration between holy man and sinful God. That was the title of the message. What's the only path? to restoration between sinful man and holy God? And the answer is what? It's Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the tabernacle. It's such a clear picture of heavenly things. And it's such a clear picture of the Son that you sent to suffer and die that we might have eternal life. Father, may we never take for granted that sacrifice. May we never take for granted the price that you paid that we might have eternal life. Father, I pray that we would be lights of the world, that we would be good caretakers of that lampstand. Lord, that we'd be filled to overflowing with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, that you would use us to minister to a lost and dying world all around us. So Lord, we love you. We praise you, Lord. You're such a great and an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand up and close the worship song.